So let us read together Lord's Day 15, questions and answers 37 to 39. What do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge, and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, by this death I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Well, loved ones, the death of Christ on the cross is what we're considering tonight as we make our way through the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation here of the Apostles' Creed. And the death of Christ on the cross or the crucifixion is something that we often hear about, we talk about, it's on our lips often. But sometimes those truths that we are most familiar with, the ones that we speak of often, are the truths really that we need to consider most and let them sink down deep into our hearts because those are often the truths that are most important think of this you know god forbid that we ever ever would come to the conclusion that we finished mining the deep riches of god's love for us in the suffering of christ Uh, and that's what we're doing tonight we're going down into the mine so to speak of the suffering of christ in order to discover again the riches that still lie in wait for us there in what Christ suffered. And so, as the Catechism is explaining what we mean here by he suffered, we first consider that Christ suffered great physical pain. Great physical pain. Let's remember that Christ felt pain in his human brain, in his human nature. He felt the pain as well of shame and blame in his human soul. So what I mean by this is that when, think of the the various different pains that were inflicted upon him, like the lashes that ripped into his skin on his back, opening up his body to the wind and the air, and the surges of pain that rushed through his body and triggered the pain receptors in his brain. He felt deep, deep pain, excruciating pain in his body, on the tree and his brain his human brain processed that pain and of course there's a reason why we use the word excruciating to refer to the highest degree of pain and that's because death by crucifixion was excruciatingly painful the romans uh, in their empire they cultivated this this strategic way of torturing the vilest of criminals in their day to make a show of them so that others would not go down the same path. To understand a bit more the history of the the painfulness of crucifixion, uh, I found this by Dr. Colleen Schreer of Azusa Pacific, uh, who studied biology and the physiological suffering of death 
by crucifixion in antiquity. And so listen to how she describes what Christ suffered in his body. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians between 300 and 400 BC, and is quite possibly the most painful death ever invented by humankind. The English word derives the word excruciating from crucifixion, acknowledging it as a form of slow, painful suffering. Its punishment was reserved for slaves, foreigners, revolutionaries, and the vilest of criminals. So as Jesus hangs on the cross, the weight of his body pulls down on the diaphragm, and the air moves into his lungs and remains there. We can imagine Jesus pushing up on his nailed feet, causing more pain to exhale. In order to speak, air must pass over the vocal cords during exhalation, And the Gospels note that Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. It is amazing that despite his pain, he pushed up to say, forgive them. Think of that. The difficulty surrounding exhalation leads to a slow form of suffocation. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting in a high level of carbonic acid in the blood. The body responds instinctively, triggering the desire to breathe. At the same time, the heart beats faster to circulate available oxygen. The decreased oxygen, due to the difficulty of exhaling, causes damage to the tissues, and the capillaries begin leaking watery fluid from the blood into the tissues. This results in a buildup of fluid around the heart and lungs, the collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues essentially suffocate the victim. The decreased oxygen also damages the heart itself, which leads to cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac stress, the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. And so she concludes that Jesus most likely died of a heart attack. So uh, a, a striking description. And she goes on to say that it is probably far worse than we can even put into words. And people walking by would, would not even look because it was so vile and scandalous to them. And it's good to remember and think about Christ and how he suffered in his body. Why? Not only because we consider his physical suffering, but also his physical suffering was in a way an enactment or an outward expression of the deeper suffering that Christ endured on the cross. As we looked at Friday night, In our study together, B.B. Warfield writes, In the presence of this mental anguish, the physical tortures of the crucifixion retire into the background. So they kind of slip away. And we may well believe that our Lord, though he died on the cross, yet died not of the cross, but as we commonly say, of a broken heart. And so what we affirm and believe is that what Christ Jesus suffered in our place on the cross was far, far worse than suffering physical pain because he also suffered the pain of our shame and our blame upon him and God's own wrath. Well, what do I mean by shame and blame? Well, imagine this nightmare for yourself. So there you are in this, in this dream. You wake up in the middle of your dream, or not wake up, but you're in the middle of your dream, And all of your friends and family and all of your neighbors, those who know you are around you, and you realize that you're completely naked. You've been stripped of all your clothing. So you feel very vulnerable, right? Not only that, your whole life 
is laid bare, naked before your friends and family who see all of your selfish desires and all of your arrogant thoughts and all of your hurtful actions and words. So not only are you outwardly naked, but also your soul is laid bare for all to see. All of your shame laid out on the table. It's almost as if, you know, imagine someone had access to a flash drive filled with all of your evil thoughts, all of your evil doings over all of your years of existence and put that flash drive into a computer and project it on a screen in front of everybody that you know. Imagine how you would feel. In such a case, you would feel the shameful urge immediately to get up, grab that flash drive and destroy it as quick as possible, lest anyone see what was on it, right? Or perhaps you would flee and go into hiding forever, never to return again. Well, that nightmare is in part what Jesus felt on the cross, immeasurable shame and blame for the evil doings that he never committed. He was completely innocent. So the nightmare of his suffering was not of his own making. It was not his own guilt and shame. It was yours and mine on his shoulders. And he took it willingly, being wrongly accused, mocked and ultimately condemned by Pontius Pilate as basically a blasphemous liar. And essentially, he was condemned as one of the vilest individuals alive because, again, crucifixion was reserved for those kinds of people. They saw him as a threat to the peace of Rome, and therefore they made a public display of him. That is how humanity, that is how we treated the Son of God. We turned God into the public display of humanity's worst, and then we directed all the force of torture and guilt tripping and laid it upon him we crucified the son of god but again all the physical and emotional pain that was upon jesus it was real and terrible but it was not the greatest pain that jesus experienced as the heidelberg catechism says here jesus sustained in body and soul the wrath of god against the sins of all mankind and was condemned in our place in order to free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. And in that book that we were reading together, Dane Ortland writes this of the wrath of God that came upon him. He says, all our feelings of forsakenness were funneled through an actual human heart in a single moment of anguished horror on Calvary, an actual forsakenness. Who could possibly bear up beneath it? Who would not cry out and shout out to lose that depth of communion with the father was to die. The great love at the heart of the universe was being rent in two. The world's light was going out and inventing that righteous wrath. God was not striking a morally neutral tree. He was splintering the lovely one. Beauty and goodness himself was being uglified and vilified so that we ugly ones could be freely beautified, pardoned, and calmed. Our heaven came through his hell, our entrance into love through his loss of it. Beautiful description there. And we find that the intensity of God's wrath comes out even more when we consider the curse of the law that fell upon Christ. I said this morning, if you're here with us, 
that uh, the Jewish understanding of blessedness, when they recognize blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that blessedness was framed by their understanding of the Mosaic law. So those who obeyed would be blessed of God. And so too, curse or cursedness was framed by the law of Moses. And Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 shows us that the death by hanging on a tree signified that a person was accursed by God, which means that the curse of sin and death fell on that person. Why? For their disobedience to God's commands, disobedience to the law of Moses. Then in Deuteronomy 28, we read a long list, a long list, the list um, of severe curses that a person would call upon themselves by disobeying God. The list of curses is far longer than the list of blessings there. And as we read some of these, think of how Christ took cursedness upon himself for us. Even though he was perfectly faithful and deserved to be blessed of God, he was a curse for us. And so this is from Deuteronomy 28. It says, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. You will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of life. In the morning you will say, if only it were evening, and in the evening you would say, if only it were morning, because of the terror that will fill your hearts and the sights that your eyes will see. So that curse in Deuteronomy 28, those curses, and there are many more, that God seriously warned the Israelites about is the same curse that fell upon Jesus. It's a, in a way a description of the agony that he felt on the cross. Paul tells us why why Jesus willingly took this on himself. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 to 14, he says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and this is Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And so why did Jesus become a curse for us, hung on a pole as a curse by God? It was in order to bless us, in order to bless us. But he first had to free us from that curse that, that hung over us, right, for our disobedience. And so in love, he was lifted up as accursed of God so that he could free us from that condemnation that we so deserve for our disobedience, for our forsaking God, in order to adopt us into God's family and give us the promise of the Holy Spirit leading us into eternal life. He went that far, that deep in love for us. And all of this, this lifting up on a pole as a curse, should remind us of another episode in the Old Testament uh, found in Numbers, chapter 21, 
When the Israelites, you remember, were in the wilderness and they sinned and grumbled and complained against God and against Moses. And in judgment, God sent them a curse of venomous snakes and serpents who went among them, biting them, and they were dying. And all were dying of that curse, justly deserved for their disobedience. And then we read this in Numbers. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So this is striking. God had Moses forge this bronze serpent, the very symbol of the curse, and lift it up on a pole for all to see. And by simply looking at the symbol of the curse, God promised to heal them from the curse that he had sent upon them. And what's even more striking, we find in John's gospel, Jesus makes reference to that. In chapter 3, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So he has done the work to set us free from the curse of sin and death that we deserve. We deserve How? By becoming a curse for us, by being lifted up on that tree of Calvary, accursed by God. The full weight of the curses that were there enumerated in Deuteronomy fell on Jesus Christ. That was the agony and torment of soul that he experienced on top of the physical pain that he felt in his human brain. And think of this, Jesus, when he's on the cross, he didn't cry out, oh, how painful are these nails in my hands, which cut through a nerve that forced the hands to cringe and a surge of pain that was like lightning, they say, through the wrist and through the hand. No, he didn't say that. He didn't complain about that. He didn't complain about the splinters in his back as he had to push up on the cross in order to exhale. He didn't say, how terrible are the insults of those who are before me? No. Instead, what did he cry out? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? It's because the ultimate consequence of the curse is consciously feeling separation from God and all of his blessings. It's what it means to be fully separated from God and his blessedness. That is the curse. So the worst part of the Son of God's experience was feeling that full curse upon himself. Nobody has ever, no human has ever experienced such a degree of suffering that Christ did on that cross, and none ever will. For it wasn't just the curse that was meant for one person, for one person's disobedience. It wasn't just that weight, which is heavy enough, right? None of us can bear that alone. But it was more, it was the cumulative curse and judgment of God against all of the elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all compressed down into those six hours on the cross and upheld by one man, Jesus Christ. See how much the Son of God, God incarnate, willingly suffered for you. Amazing. For you, for me. See how he loved us despite our rebellion, despite us forsaking him. No, his heart for sinners and sufferers like us, like you, by considering the passion of his cross under the curse. Now, what is the proper response to this? 
to this meditation on the cross of Christ and his suffering. Well, we didn't get there on Friday night. Uh, Tad Decker uh, alluded to it to me afterwards, but in the epilogue of Dane Ortland's book, he gives a great answer to that question. So how do we respond to considering the suffering of Christ in this way? Well, the main answer is this, nothing. <laughs> to ask, how do, how do I apply this in my life would be a trivialization of it. If an Eskimo, he gives this illustration, if an Eskimo who's used to being very cold, right, in the snow with not much sun or warmth, if an Eskimo wins a vacation to a sunny place, he doesn't arrive in his hotel room, step out onto his balcony and wonder, hmm, how am I going to apply this in my life? No, he just enjoys it. He just basks in it. And so that's what we must do, bask in the love of God for us in Christ. He does say there is one thing that we can do, which is what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come to me, come to me. So loved ones, as we consider the passion of Christ this week, go to him. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, have you a mind? In other words, can you think? <laughs> Do you actually have a mind? If you do, know this, he came down from heaven to die for you. He will meet you more than halfway, as the prodigal's father is said to do. Oh, therefore, come unto him. If you knew his heart, you would. So open yourselves up to him, loved ones. Receive his love, then bask in the warmth of his life-giving glory for sinners and sufferers like us. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this short but hopefully meaningful consideration and meditation in your word on what it means that Christ suffered in our place, condemned. He stood under the curse, God, that we deserve for sinning and rebelling against you. Oh, what love, what marvelous grace you have shown to us. The Lamb of God was slain to forgive us and cleanse us from all our sins. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to receive that, to accept it, to bask in it, and that your love for us would infuse new life into us, that we might respond with gratitude and sing with joy in our hearts. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.